the project that I've been working on in my nerd capacity of researching how delegates go to the Democratic National Convention is I formed a committee which falls under a political action committee called Medicare for All Delegates Network. And it is MedicareForAllDelegatesNetwork.com or MedicareForAllDelegatesNetwork.NationBuilder.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. And this is to support individuals who are running as a delegate to their county, state, and then the national convention of the DNC who will not yield on voting for the Medicare for All candidate. One of the strategies that we are concerned that the DNC, big pharma, big insurance are going to use is getting to the national convention. The first ballot is supposed to be just the elected delegates from each community. But if we have more than three or four candidates headed into the convention, we're risking the first brokered convention uh, that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. And with that, there's not a lot of experience in the room. So that calls upon people to research, how does this happen? And then the DNC changed the rules, making it where the second ballot allows for the superdelegates. And my concern uh, when we get to the superdelegates is that they're going to be much more beholden to big money. If you look at the number of superdelegates who received campaign contributions from both Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, that should be concerning. If you look at the number of superdelegates that have other agendas, that should be concerning that uh, we fought so that we could get an elimination of superdelegates. We didn't get there. I'm very concerned about that second ballot. But what also happens in that second ballot is that if we perhaps have two candidates that may be close to Medicare for all, you're unbound at that second ballot. Actually, delegates in the delegate selection plan under the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the Democratic National Committee committee are supposed to be able to change their candidate preference at every step in the process. So I'm also empowering individuals to find out who those delegates are and nationally lobby. So you may be the delegate from Oklahoma, but you can get lobbied by an individual from Nevada explaining to you how they lost their child to the for-profit healthcare system. And maybe you might want to pick a different candidate. This is CNN. Imagine what it looks like if we run an ad in Kentucky uh, to, and these are real Facebook uh, targeting criteria, we could run an ad saying that Mitch McConnell is secretly supportive of impeachment and is just waiting to impeach Donald Trump um, because he wants more power for himself or he doesn't like Trump. And we run those to the categories of high school, education or less. Are you and going to do that? Uh, I'm not going to tip my hand because there's a lot of, uh, you sounds know, like you're going to do that. Do. <laughs> we'll see. All right. We will see. All there's right, a Adriel lot of submissions Hampton. coming in. Uh, I bet there are. All right. Uh, we'll be following. We'll be tracking what you're cooking up. Adriel Hampton. Thank you. Thank you. Christine. It's really good to have you on the show today. Um, one of the things that's been coming up, uh, a lot, uh, since, uh, my pack and, uh, subsequently, uh, a page I created for a political campaign as far as running fake ads on Facebook to expose their policies. And one thing that I've seen is a lot of people who talk to me want us to do more. They want us to actually lie, not just uh, call attention to the fact that you can lie, but 
uh, go out and whether it's make hundreds of microsites that smear Republicans uh, or whether it is actually targeting ads that are false to folks who are likely to fall for them. And um, I, I have to say that it's a real uh, ethical dilemma because clearly the Trump campaign is benefiting from its ability to run false ads on Facebook. Absolutely. And the Trump campaign knows where to micro-target that all of the data that's out there as an app, what most of the public doesn't realize is that as an advertiser on Facebook, how we're able to so narrowly focus down to people or how we're able to upload a list of names and then focus to people in that. So it's not just a matter of a fake ad can run, but that we can go through and sort by someone's in, inferred education level. Uh, we could look at individuals who are lower information voters versus uh, people that have uh, articulate uh, choice, word choices uh, as they use Facebook. That all of these little micro pieces of data make these fake ads much more dangerous, especially when they're coming from a candidate wanting to make the point to vote for them. Uh, as someone who's operated campaigns in several states, uh, you have to be careful when you're running these ads because you can have in your individual state come before an election ethics board. Uh, unfortunately, what happens is in many campaigns, including the presidential campaign, that when you're getting to October, if you're running a bunch of fake ads, any fines or fees that may be levied against you just become a part of doing business. And another dangerous thing about political communications right now is that the FEC does not have a quorum. They are not hearing cases. I was just in San Diego doing a training about a month and a half ago. And of that board of the FEC, you can file all the complaints you like, but they can't rule on them. And Facebook and um, Twitter is now pulled from political ads, but any other digital format, we're not going to have any regulatory oversight who are going to rule on a case until well after the 2020 election. Right. And I think that uh, that lack of quorum follows just uh, an inability of the FEC uh, to create a clear landscape for federal elections in the digital arena, right? Most of the laws that are applying to digital are coming from uh, telecommunications uh, regulations that are for um, previous technologies. I don't see, it's kind of like for a while you saw on every website they were using like uh, a square around the disclosure because that's what mm -hmm. you're supposed to do on, on uh, mailings. Um, but I think that the frequency of these Trump ads is just not something uh, anticipated at all by the, by the current uh, regulations. Well, as a technical matter, anytime you're spending campaign funds that exceed $1,000 on a platform. So if it's less than $1,000 and you're doing a set of ads, you don't have to have that box. It's still a good practice because once you start running that ad, you don't know if it may get to a point, catch on fire, get over $1,000. And that's also $1,000 in the entirety of the use of that platform. So it uh, becomes a cumulative effect throughout the whole, um, and it's not just that one campaign cycle, it is the cumulative effect of all of the cycles moving forward. So technically you are supposed to have that disclosure box that you've spent campaign funds. And just as a matter of good practice, having that box should 
alert the public onto it, that we're not teaching critical thinking in schools right now, uh, that I have two adult children, and when they were in high school, I would point out to them, you know, this is your critical thinking skills. Here's a political ad. What do you guys think about it? And it's my own children know to look for if it was from the candidate or from a PAC, uh, but the general public, did they know that you're going to look to see if that was Trump's ad or a PAC that supports Trump? Or you, any one of us can go on today and file a new PAC with the FEC and start running ads in 24 hours. And that often happens at the end of election cycles. If you look at the thousands of campaign committees that open and close just within that month with, of the election that box that people put their disclosures in was never in the FEC rulings. It was uh, something specific for websites. It was specific to mail. And that's what I'm, the point is, is that the, the, the regulations from the FEC um, don't keep up with the technology. We now have Facebook ads that have these disclosures up top along with the name of the page that's running the ad. Um, but recent surveys have shown that people still don't really differentiate between paid content and unpaid content on Facebook. For example, um, I've heard proposals that you clearly mark what's an ad versus what's not with something like a, uh, a shaded background or a large uh, or a box around that content. But that is not required on Facebook. It's not present there. And then the bigger problem is that uh, Trump and other politicians are flat out allowed to lie by Facebook, and uh, there's little to no repercussion from voters or regulatory bodies. Um, there's just not oversight of that. And Judd Legume, who's a reporter with uh, Popular Information, uh, has been covering this issue a lot. And here's what um, he said about it. it, it and I'll maybe, I'm going to read something that he put up on Twitter from November 22nd. Now, I'll give you the background also that I've learned from Facebook fact checkers that fact checkers at Facebook who are typically independent third parties um, who look at these ads uh, when they go viral uh, have said that politicians were always exempt to their knowledge. So this is not actually a new policy, but here's Judd. He says, in September, Facebook VP Nick Clegg laid the groundwork for Facebook's policy to allow lies in political ads. Quoting Clegg, in mature democracies of the free press, political speech is already arguably the most scrutinized speech there is. And then Judd says, let's explore that a bit. Clegg and Facebook argue that the company doesn't need to fact check political ads because these ads are already scrutinized. It's true, for example, political ads on TV are scrutinized, but does that apply to Facebook ads? No. Let me explain why. Facebook says it has a system that lets third parties scrutinize ads from candidates on Facebook. It's political ad library. But yesterday, and this is from the 22nd of November, yesterday the Trump campaign had over 4,700 active ads on Facebook. And then he includes a video, and it's like a minute long of him just scrolling as rapidly as you can through an Excel spreadsheet. He says, it's impossible for any of these ads to be subject to scrutiny. There are just too many, and Facebook isn't devoting resources to the problem. It expects journalists to do so, even as it sucks advertising revenue from the industry. Suppose you were able to scrutinize 4,700 ads in one day. It still wouldn't matter because Facebook keeps the targeting of ads secret. And this is uh, the point you were discussing, Christine, that mm -hmm. the targeting is really important. He says, if I see a political ad during a football game, I can air a rebuttal during the next game. There's no corollary here. Even if Facebook allowed you to retarget the audiences, you'd still need over $800,000 per week just to reach the same people the Trump campaign is reaching. 
in some, there's no scrutiny of these ads, little to no scrutiny of these ads. That's the way Facebook has built the system. You tune into Facebook to hear that you are smarter than your neighbor and you know better than them. And these ads just confirm that. So I, what I talked with CNN about, well, I've been involved now with three uh, fake ads that had news coverage uh, that are meant to point out uh, these you know, the, these Facebook policies that, that Judd writes about. Uh, one was the Lindsey Graham uh, endorses the Green New Deal, which was a, uh, came from a statement by uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Finance Committee uh, testimony with Mark Zuckerberg. The second was uh, an ad that I did the voiceover for that was run by a candidate for Congress against Nancy Pelosi, Shahid Buttar. That one uh, proclaimed that Pelosi had given away all her property to house homeless people. And then it did kind of say at the end, you know, Facebook allows fake ads, like fight back, something like that. Um, Business Insider covered that. And then the third one, I ran through uh, a page for my political campaign uh, as a candidate, which is what Facebook says the rules are for exemptions from fact checking. Uh, And that one said that uh, Sean Hannity had replaced Mike Pence on the VP ticket. And Forbes covered that after it ran for a week with no reaction from Facebook. And one of the things that's crazy is that uh, if your ad doesn't go viral, um, Facebook doesn't seem to care about fact-checking them at all. Like, they don't even get to the fact-checkers. As I did have all kinds of people saying, fake news, fake news, fake news, no response from Facebook, which had said that they wanted to check uh, ads that, that I ran because I went viral with the uh, with the Green New Deal. So then the question is, you know, could you run those kind of ads, like saying that, that um, for example, uh, Trump, if you look at the ad library, while you can't see the targeting, you can see the Trump ads. It says there's more than 50,000 ads from Trump. And uh, the most recent ads say impeachment results, colon, House Dems voted yes. And that's in all caps. And then it says sign your name to fight impeachment. There, there's a I guess, an interpretation that could say that the House voted to open an impeachment inquiry, but they definitely have not voted for impeachment to date. Yet you have, you know, Trump asserting this. And you could do this something similar. You could say uh, McConnell voted yes for impeachment. Uh, And it's also not just the, the Trump campaign. One of the items that came up at the FEC was that there are these, uh, they call them zombie packs that form, that have no authorization, nothing associating them with the campaign. They're just good marketers. They make ads. And those people bring in money that uh, they pay themselves a salary and nothing else ever becomes of it. So it's both uh, a challenge in our political discourse, but it's also a scam. Well, when you talk about zombie packs, or I've heard them called scam packs, there was even allegations that Ben Carson's campaign uh, was basically of the same nature in 2016, because you had uh, a data firm that does direct mail uh, hitting up its list and keeping a large majority of the donations uh, raised for Ben Carson. So, but this ability to flat out lie seems new. And one of the discussions is like, as Judd points out, if you have a TV ad, like it's it's discreet, it's on a certain program or set of programs, um, whereas these Facebook ads, we're seeing thousands and thousands of them, and they could be from PACs, but the biggest uh, advertiser on Facebook right now is is Donald Trump, although you have, I think, Mike Bloomberg and 
uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg and uh, Tom Steyer also competing for that. Mm-hmm. You know, what if we ran an ad and were funded to run an ad that said Republicans already voted yes, and then you single out and you say, you know, punish the traitor, and you have the uh, the local uh, senator, the state senator for the the U.S. senator from that state, uh, whether it's Kentucky or South Carolina. Uh, or other districts where uh, Republicans are on the ballot in 2020. Um, if Trump is lying, should we be lying and should we be spending money to do it? Because right now uh, you know, we've been using broader targeting and only uh, only you know very small amounts of money. And I've had uh, people approach me and say that absolutely that's what we should be doing. Not, none of them are funders. So I haven't had the, uh, you know, it hasn't been a temptation because I'm not, you know, I can't spend $20,000 in Kentucky saying that Mitch McConnell had voted for impeachment. And I'm guessing that it's because they know that, that there hasn't been a reaction from Republicans, right? I've been able to prove and get it into the media and get a lot of attention around the fact that uh, Facebook is, uh, a sea of disinformation, um, but the goal of getting the policy reversed uh, and and subjecting politicians to fact checking, or uh, you know, the Facebook employees uh, last um, month wrote a letter to Facebook, uh, and it and it and it leaked. It was like 250 people uh, calling for changes to political advertising, and uh, one of the things they said is they didn't want. Uh, so much micro-targeting in political ads. Um, And, you know, there's also been talk of just slowing things down, putting more rigorous fact-checking. That's Sasha Baron Cohen saying, you know, if you can hire, you know, if you can be a a $50 billion company, you can actually hire fact-checkers as well and and, uh, stop the spread of this kind of misinformation. But on a system where thousands of ads are running at any time from Donald Trump alone, um, you know, what are you going to do? And what are they self-reporting as far as individuals that you get an ad in your feed, you can click on it and say, I think this ad is fake. Uh, It's something I've instructed campaigns to do, especially in primaries when it's uh, left on left, uh, to go in, report the ad. Uh, Facebook will then immediately pull the ad at something in their algorithm, but why should we take our resources fighting that? Will they pull it for for a single response? Because that's definitely they did not pull my ad and it had uh the the, the pence hannity From one and it what had- i found in a con- the last congressional campaign i ran in 2018 was it took about eight to ten reports and then we would see the ad drop off interesting and i i think based on what i've heard uh from facebook that for Trump, uh, they would not do that because they're saying we're allowing politicians to say anything they want and the voters can be the judge of that. Um, and I've gone rogue and I've instructed campaigns to just take that ad reported as violent, reported as offensive, rather than there's a section that says, I don't agree with this ad. That's mm. not the way to, to pull it. The way to pull it is to say, I think it's violent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's true with some of the Trump ads that, uh, that, uh, may instigate violence against Democrats, um, making accusations about things that are not true uh, in terms of their policies. Um, the, this stuff is also can be very subtle. Um, there's an example, uh, another example from Judd. He says, uh, the Trump campaign has a bunch of Facebook ads that tell people they have special access to his Black Friday sale. 
35% off everything because they are a top supporter. But the ad is a lie. Anyone can go to the website and get 35% off. This um, is part this of a pattern of schemes that Judd uh, has uh, exposed concerning Trump the Trump campaign promising things that are free uh, anyway, promising things that have already been given away uh, and lying about like winning, you know, dinner with Trump and shit. Right. The winning dinner was, was crazy because it was about like a dozen different uh, uh, meals with Trump with no evidence that those were ever uh, given away. And I think after his reporting, there was like, Oh, there was a lunch, but Trump wasn't there. Or he like called in, um, and I, I think that the challenge is that that uh, reporters cannot keep up with the flurry of activity. Yet, as we we've talked about previously, do we want the Trump administration regulating this stuff? I what I want is transparency. One of the things that would be interesting, and I, I may do this, is running parody versions of Trump's own ads where you basically sub in, you know, the opposite kind of language, the opposite intent uh, down to, you know, the parodying the actual style of his ads. I think that could be interesting. And, uh, but I have to think more about how you would target it. And then there's the third bit, which would be just running blatantly false ads uh, targeting them to similar kinds of people that are getting targeting from Trump just on the same page that that originates describing the campaign. So if you do any work to research it, it's very clear that it's a campaign of active disinformation meant to fight back against Trump's campaign of active disinformation, um, but it would uh, potentially have a real effect. We know that in 2016, the Trump campaign ran ads that were, um, I don't think they were lies, I think they were uh, designed and, and probably misleading specifically to suppress the votes of uh, idealistic liberals, of young women who uh, are one of the, the voting blocks that's the biggest voting block for turnout. If you can turn them out, you can win. If they stay home, you can't um, when you're a liberal or when you're Hillary Clinton. Um, and then the third uh, being uh, African-Americans. And well, a unique set of ads that we had in Nevada is that Nevada is the only state that in the federal election, you can vote for none of the above. Mm. So there were active ads in the state of Nevada encouraging anyone that was, that their algorithm showed that they were idealistic. Lots of ads uh, running up to the general election, reminding you that you could vote for none of the above. Wow. And people often forget politics isn't just about switching someone to vote for your team. It's about keeping the other side home and denying the other side votes. Right. And we know that about 100 million eligible voters didn't vote in 2016. And that'll be something that the Trump campaign hopes keeps up because uh, they lost the popular vote last time. They'll probably lose the popular vote even larger this time. But if they can keep, you know, 50,000 voters home in Arizona or uh, in North Carolina who would otherwise vote for the Democratic nominee, they, they, they uh, you know, they could win those states and win the Electoral College. So this is a really a big challenge for Democrats because uh, all of the things that the Clinton campaign told people were going to happen in 2016, whether or not they happened or not. Most human beings, their lives are about the same. Struggling Americans, their lives are about the same as they were four years ago.
Mm. And, and, and there's you think no that mushroom cloud. There's home. nothing. They're going to stay home. That there's already a low level of interest among Americans for politics. That if Democrats have been screaming that Trump is so awful, all of these things are going to happen. But when I've traveled the the country and I've been all over the country this year talking to voters, most people are like, my life is still the same. I don't care what Trump's done in his personal life that Democrats have not traditionally delivered for me. So why am I going to get upset and cheer for one team or the other? That the level of disinterest is so high and the targeting of these ads that you're like, it's not going to be, are you bet, like Reagan said, are you better off than you were four years ago? We're, uh, that Trump can make an argument. Is your life about the same as it was four years ago? It didn't get any worse, did it? <laughs> if the Democrats bring forward another incrementalist people are just going to tune out. And if Democrats bring forward a candidate that isn't about any kind of change, I think that it's the backlash in 2020 is so fundamentally going to dwarf what we had in 2016. I mean, I think that, that it's the policies that are on offer because I think it'll be really hard to get someone to vote no, none of the above if you have a candidate on the ballot who is... Uh, espousing Medicare for all and college tuition and loan forgiveness, uh, free college tuition and loan forgiveness. Because if you if you look back at Obama 2008, he actually promised a, a kind of a blanket tax cut. And it was only, I think, a few hundred dollars. Um, but it's when voters see their economic interest on the ballot, and Republicans always do this, um, I think they're much more likely to turn out and much more likely to support um, and this is what's so strange to me about the establishment lane. I, I guess it is just about protecting existing financial interests. But if you are a Democrat who wants to win uh, free health care for most Americans who will pay less, uh, you know, only people are going to pay more, are the very wealthy, uh, very small percentage of the population. And then the same thing for uh, tuition forgiveness, you know, these huge um, policies that would not only these need to be life-changing policies, and Democrats have not changed your life in the last 20 years. Right. Well, yeah. and that's well, it's probably uh, once Bernie Sanders is the nominee, he can say, well, you know, I wasn't with the party at that time, and I'm running as a Democrat to reform. Number one in California. Number one in California. If the Sanders campaign earns this nomination and it is stolen again, or the general public believes it's stolen again. And this is where the Trump interference can really hurt our country and our even the party structure is that those ads are going to write themselves if there is any shred of doubt that Sanders or another progressive candidate did not get this nomination through cheating that that's going to be what writes the ads for the 2020 cycle. Those ads about the cheating and doesn't it suck that you got cheated once again, don't be a fool a third time and reward the guy who did it. I think the difficult thing is when you're up against a savage opponent like Donald Trump, uh, it doesn't matter what happens. The ads will write themselves and they don't even have to be true. Uh, if exactly. you can get out there and, you know, we're, so Sanders wins. I think that helps with the uh, policies that will get people out to the polls. But uh, at that point, Trump turns to trying to keep uh, establishment Democrats home. 
uh, and turn them against Sanders and make it out to, you know, he, he'll, he'll probably call Sanders the Russian threat. Um, and yeah. it'll, it'll be bizarre and the news will cover it. Like, you know, part of the problem too is that despite the lies, the, the mainstream news continues to run Trump 24 seven, which they, they justify it now because he's president, but they were doing it before he was president as well because they love shock value just as much as Facebook does. So that's, it's a, it's a challenging media environment all around. I always like to do a practical segment with uh, Adriel versus the oligarchs to yeah. help progress. This is a good uh, one too. Really, this show is for practitioners who are out there uh, using digital media to get uh, progressive values uh, onto uh, folks' minds and also to uh, use uh, progressive values to win elections. Um, and today we're going to talk about uh, video captioning. One of the uh, biggest uh, statistics you'll see on this is that 85% of people uh, watch their videos on Facebook and elsewhere with no sound. Um, so captioning is, is critically important. And Matt, I know you've had y y your own uh, thoughts on this. Uh, just uh, that some platforms are harder than others. Um, and Facebook, I found, was uh, not as easy as it should have been. And I just think it's really important to do for all kinds of reasons, which I'm sure uh, you're going to get into. But uh, I, I think that people are yearning um, for a little bit better interface. Yeah, it's, it's easier on YouTube, I think, uh, although there's, there are some complicated steps there, too. What is uh, really hard is reusing your captions or creating a, a what that's a subrip or SRT file um, so that you can, if you say you put your video in multiple places and, and need to load up those captions. Uh, Facebook does have some options for sharing your video with a bunch of different pages when you launch it, but it can be difficult to share once you've already posted. Um, so you might give the video to a you know, bigger page and say, hey, we want to run this, but they'll be looking for that SRT file. The other thing that's really critical, so when you post a video to Facebook, um, it'll give you uh, an option in the uh, right-hand sidebar of the pop-up when you load a video to add subtitles and captions. Um, so definitely do this. Uh, don't uh, you know, miss uh, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people. You can auto-generate your captions as well on Facebook. And so that's uh, a nice option. Um, but when you auto-generate, you also need to review and edit those. And I, I think that is where some challenges on the platform expose themselves. Uh, it's a little bit clunky, but it's not impossible. And I know I had a video recently that included the phrase robber barons and Facebook uh, wrote that as rubber barrels. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome, right? I, I was wondering though, it's like, it hears most things pretty well when you auto-generate captions. Why can't it hear Robert Barron's? But, I tried um, to do a song. I, I recorded a song, videotaped myself, um, uh, or video recorded myself uh, playing the guitar and singing a song, and it just it hacked it to death. It was, oh, uh, no. it was not, oh, no. uh, you know, but I think that was my, you know, that was my accent or something that it was reading. Yeah. The, the regional accents are definitely not corrected for in any of these formats. And when you're doing this for political campaigns and for politicians, you want to be pretty exact because uh, I could just see somebody screenshotting and say, oh, that, you know, moron politician, you know, said, 
this, <laughs> right? <laughs> they say they said rubber barrels instead of rubber barons. Um, so important to do once you start advertising a video uh, post, you cannot go back and change the captions. So that makes it especially important to edit them. Uh, what happens is you get uh, when you go to review your captions, you get timestamps. Uh, only so much text can appear on each uh, second of the video as it's playing. So uh, you sometimes will need to make the, uh, the breaks in the captions uh, a little bit different than Facebook recommends, you know, especially if speakers, it changes speakers. So just you clean that up. So after you've done all that work to create captions that work, that have the right timestamps with the right phrases uh, that don't have uh, errors or typos or uh, miss um, transcription because of, of the, the uh, accent or a musical overlay. Um, how do you then use those captions in other places? So this is where it gets, we'll have a, we'll include a, um, a link in the, the show notes, but um, with YouTube, it's pretty easy to download them. With Facebook, it's more difficult. So what you can do, and I'm gonna give the example for the browser Firefox, it's very similar with other uh, browsers. Um, when you're playing the video that is already captioned, um, you go to uh, Tools, Web Developer, and uh, Network. And that will show you uh, all of the code that's running like, in the background uh, for uh, the video on Facebook. And then you just, uh, so what you wanna do in the Firefox browser uh, is go to the Facebook video that you want the caption for. Um, once that video starts playing and you've got this uh, web developer network uh, set of windows open, is you type SRT into the filter field and you'll find a file called an XHR file. Again, I said it was uh, tricky with Facebook. Uh, you right click uh, on that uh, XHR file, select copy and copy the URL. Then you open that in a new browser tab. At that point, it's gonna prompt you to save the video and you can save that video, uh, excuse me, to save that file as an SRT file. Uh, and at that point, uh, that SRT file can be inspected uh, in something like, uh, like Notepad uh, or your text editor. And then uh, if it looks good, you can upload it with that video in other places. So uh, many places that you'll wanna load a video will ask you to upload an SRT file. Or again, if you have uh, the need to re-upload that on Facebook, uh, and you don't want to repeat all that work you did to create the file in the first time, uh, first place. And if you go to a major uh, conference venue, uh, uh, convention centers, for example, the Las Vegas Convention Center, if you're showing a video to a group of attendees, they're going to also ask for an SRT file. Great. So many uses for that. And again, you can get it out of YouTube. If you start with YouTube, download the SRT file, Facebook will let you upload that, RS, uh, that SRT file um, or it'll auto-generate uh, as YouTube does. So just make sure to edit, edit before advertising and then reuse that SRT file so you don't have to redo your captions uh, if you need to move that video around. One uh, helpful hint, because I've worked on campaigns and you're doing these video files late into the night, 
is if possible, you're going to prevent yourself from uploading something that looks like garbage the next morning as if you're working with a buddy. That too often we kind of go down our rabbit hole, we're working on a video, it's an awesome video, and the way you end up with rubber barrels out is that you've been looking at that same file for 12 hours straight. And you really want to get it out there and you really want to make your point. But it's better to have good content out the first time, knowing you can't back it out, use the buddy system.